scripture reading for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 7 to 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we do ask that you forgive us our debts while we are learning to forgive our debtors. And we pray that this morning you, Lord, would make your grace and your mercy uh, so beautiful and so rich and so deep uh, and so wide and so high that it would overwhelm us and it would make us into a people of mercy. And we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an ancient Latin saying that uh, I'm going to introduce our topic this morning with. And um, I'm not doing this so you think I'm smart. I don't know Latin. And those of you who know Latin will know I don't know Latin when you hear me pronounce this. But it's an important phrase in the history of the church. And the phrase goes like this. Lex orandi, lex credendi. Lex vivendi. And what it means is the law of prayer is the law of belief is the law of life. And if that doesn't make sense to you, what it's saying is this. How you pray shapes what you believe, which forms and shapes how you live your life. And the reason I bring this this up is because we've been looking at this prayer that Jesus gives us, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, over the past four weeks. And we've noted that this is a model prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples. And it comes right in the middle of Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about how we are to live life in light of his kingdom. And right in the middle, Jesus gives us a prayer. Because the law of prayer is the law of belief is the law of life. And so it's important to ask, what kind of life is Jesus forming and shaping in us through this prayer? Or maybe to say it a little differently, what kind of people is Jesus forming and shaping through this prayer? And this is what we've seen. Jesus intends to form a people who know God as Father. Our Father in heaven is how it begins. He intends to form and shape a people who long for God's name to be honored and hallowed. Make great your name in all the earth. Make great your name in my life. He's forming and shaping a people who desperately desire God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. Not our kingdom come and our will be done. And he's forming and shaping a people, as we saw last week, who look to God as sustainer and provider every single day of their life. That's what this prayer is doing, is forming us as the people of God. And this morning we come to the next line in the Lord's Prayer, and we see that Jesus is also interested in forming and shaping a people of forgiveness. A forgiven people and a forgiving people. 
And I want you to notice how he puts it. On the one hand, we are to say, forgive us our debts, which may be the boldest prayer anyone can ever pray. It's audacious to ask the God of the universe to forgive what you owe him. But on the other hand, there's a line attached to it. As we also have forgiven others, which may be the most troubling and disturbing line that we find in the whole prayer. In fact, it's the only one that Jesus goes on to make a comment about right after this passage in verses 14 to 15. And we need to wrestle with both of these, both of these. But, you know, it's hard to talk about forgiveness in our cultural moment because in many ways, forgiveness is on the outs. I don't mean that no one ever talks about it at all, but forgiveness has faded from the foreground and other things have moved into its place. And it's sort of there in the background and occasionally pokes, pokes its head out. But for the most part, forgiveness is on the outs. And I think it's on the outs for two basic reasons. The first is we have a hard time with forgiveness in a context of so much injustice and abuse and trauma. Not only in the world, but in the life of the church. And when we start talking about forgiveness, it feels reckless and dangerous. But of course, what has happened as forgiveness has faded into the background, as one person put it, is we no longer cancel debts, but we still cancel debtors. And it in many ways is tearing society apart. But you know what the other reason is that it's hard to talk about this? Is... We think that what we really need is not forgiveness, but self-love and self-esteem. In fact, we say, don't talk about sins. Don't talk about forgiveness. That actually makes us feel bad about ourselves. And in fact, that feels very irrelevant to what is really wrong with me. And it might actually produce some neurosis in me if we fixate on this too much. And the weird thing is, is that it's like we've contracted An illness, the type of illness that makes the food that would nourish us completely unpalatable to us. We're disgusted by it or we're put off by it when it's the very thing we need to feed our hearts. Jesus talked a lot about forgiveness. He told stories about it. He enacted it in his relationships with people. He gives it as a part of the model prayer that he gives his people. And in fact, even after Jesus died and rose again, he sends out his disciples into the world to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name. It's part of the mission statement, not only for Jesus, but for his people. When you read the New Testament letters over and over again, you see forgiveness come up. That in Christ we have all spiritual blessings. And one of the ones that Paul names is forgiveness of sins. When you look at the way the early church was supposed to relate to each other. Over and over again you have forgive as the Lord forgave you. And even when you move past the New Testament letters and look at the life of the early church. In the oldest, one of the oldest creeds that we have, the Apostles' Creed. You know what it says? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. We're dealing with something that is at the heart of Christianity. And we need to give it its attention. And we need to notice that Jesus tucks it right in to this prayer that is forming and shaping God's people into who they're supposed to be. 
So I want to talk this morning just about two things. And that is really these two lines, separating them for a moment and then try to bring them back together at the end. I want to talk about the forgiveness that we need to receive. And I want to talk about the forgiveness that we need to give. Because God's people are supposed to be a forgiven and a forgiving people. So let's start first with the forgiveness that we need to receive. The, the, the beginning of this verse is, Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Now we know that he's not just talking about financial debts here. Because a little bit later, as I mentioned, Jesus makes a comment about this in verses 14 to 15. And he uses the words, the word trespasses. And then if you look at Luke's version of this in his gospel, Luke chapter 11, verse 4, he uses the word sins, right? Debts, trespasses, sins, it's all in the same orbit here. But Jesus is using this imagery to emphasize that we owe something that we have not paid and maybe cannot pay. And the imagery is drawn from the world of commerce, And it signals the moral and social obligations that are our duty to discharge. And we don't discharge them. So we owe. We're in debt. We're in debt to the God of the universe. But what we are asking for is God to forgive these debts. And in this metaphorical world, that means to erase numbers on a business ledger. Now think about that. That, This is what we are saying. Father in heaven, erase from the ledger every failure of mine towards you and towards others. Father in heaven, cancel my debts. Now what I want you to hear this as is as good news. You can ask God to wipe the slate clean. You can ask God... To cancel your debts. And that's a pretty audacious thing. I mean, can you imagine, for those of you who are homeowners, walking into your bank and saying, I want you to cancel my mortgage, but I want to keep the house. Right? You'd be laughed out of there. But Jesus is teaching us to shamely ask for something that is so much greater. When you read in 1 John chapter 1, 1 John is a book of the Bible that we looked at this past fall. We read the line and Verse 9 of chapter 1, that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is breathtaking if it weren't so familiar to us. Forgive us all the things we have done and all the things we have left undone. Forgive us all our failures. Jesus is carving into our consciousness The need for confession of sin. But he's also carving into our consciousness the liberation and joy of having sins forgiven. It's something we're to ask for and receive regularly. Now some of you might be asking right now, why why do we need this? Didn't Jesus pay it all? Didn't he pay for all our sins on the cross? Or to ask it another way, if we've already been cleansed, justified, redeemed, why do I need to keep asking for forgiveness? And you know, one of the ways to approach this is to recognize that Jesus is wanting us to relate to God as father, not judge. 
If you relate to God as judge, your Christianity will be cold and sterile and stifle if you relate to him as judge alone. But Jesus is addressing us as God's children and God is our father. And one of the things we know about sin is that it interrupts and disrupts fellowship. It messes up the enjoyment of our relationship with our father. So one reason that we need to still do this is we continue to ask for forgiveness because we keep messing up the most important relationship in our lives. And we will keep on doing that until the day that we are fully made new. But there's another reason here as well. Jesus tells us to confess our sins regularly. And that tells us something about the nature of sin. Sin isn't just egregiously bad behavior. It's actually an infection in the heart. And it needs daily treatment. But the good news is the daily treatment is forgiveness. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He wants you and I to live in the freedom of forgiveness. In the joy of a rich and beautiful relationship with our father. You know, we all have those seasons in our life where God feels distant. Or prayer just feels boring. Or it's like your spiritual life is totally dry and lifeless. And there's a lot of ways that we try to kickstart that. We might start journaling or we might go on prayer walks or we go to silent retreats. And that's great. But have you ever tried confessing your sins? It's one of the things Jesus tells us to. And it's often overlooked, but it is a doorway to freedom and life. What sins can we ask forgiveness for? You ready for this? All sins. Big and supposedly small, public and private, shared and hidden, even known and unknown, according to the Psalms. And if you are having trouble thinking like, I just don't know what are my sins. You want to get a size of the mortgage, sense of the size of the mortgage? Why don't you spend some time looking at the Ten Commandments? Carefully going through them, walking through them and considering your ways. If you get through that well, which I don't know how you do, then why don't you go to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he spells it out in a little greater detail. Oh, you think you don't commit adultery? Do you lust after people in your heart? Oh, you think you don't murder? Is there anybody you wish was just out of your life and that you hate and you don't want to ever see again? And even if somehow you make it through that, consider the two great commandments where Jesus says, what you owe is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And who does that? And love your neighbor as yourself. No one gives the same amount of attention and care and deference and focus to others as we do to ourselves and our feelings. But this is what Jesus is saying. God can cancel these debts. The Psalms bear witness to this. In Psalm 32, David is crying out to God and he says, when I... When I held on to my sin, when I did not owe up to it, when I didn't deal with it, my bones rotted inside of me. My soul shriveled up. But when I confessed my sin, it was like joy began to flood back into my heart. Or Psalm 103, where it talks about how God can cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's forever. 
God can cancel debts. We ask for forgiveness on the reg because Jesus wants you to live in the freedom of forgiveness. Now, some of us might still be saying, but yeah, like, you know, thinking about my sin, that just really gets me down. In fact, I'm concerned it's going to lead me to self-hatred and self-loathing. But you know what? I think it does exactly the opposite. It actually leads to security in the Father's love. You will never know the best about God's love for you until you faced the worst about yourself. In fact, we see this play out over and over again in Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels. And one of the places where this really pops is in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus goes in to the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee, he's interested in Jesus. He's got him in his house because he's curious about who he is. He wants to size him up. He wants to figure him out. He's impressed with him. But Simon offers no normal gestures of hospitality to Jesus when Jesus enters his home. And right in the middle of this dinner party, a woman from the city, a prostitute, comes wandering in, falls at Jesus' feet, begins weeping and washing his feet with her hair and her tears and pouring out perfume on him. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you really see what is going on here? And he tells a story about two debtors, one who is forgiven little and one who is forgiven much. And he says, which one do you think loves more? And Simon finally gets something right and says, the one who was forgiven much. And Jesus says, you're finally getting it. She loves much because she was forgiven much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. Now, I don't think what Jesus is saying is, Simon, you don't really need a lot of forgiveness, um, so your love limit is kind of right here. What he's saying is, Simon, you don't see yourself rightly. And Jesus is doing something remarkable here. He's, in, he's tying the intensity of our love for him to the depth of our experience of his forgiveness. Let me put it this way. If you think you're a 50 cent sinner who gets a 50 cent forgiveness, don't be surprised when you feel a 50 cent love. But the woman is a model of faith for us is one who knows I'm a 50 bagillion dollar. I just made up a word cent sinner who got a 50 bagillion dollar forgiveness. And it is producing a 50 bagillion dollar love inside of me. Not only will this not lead to self-hatred and self-loathing, it will make your heart burst with love for God. And not just love for God, but love for others. What do I mean by that? When is it that we are the most hateful and hurtful? It is when we are most self-righteous and proud. And we are most self-righteous and proud when we are least aware of our own sins and failures. Jesus is giving you a key to unlock something absolutely extraordinary in your life. But some of us still say, I get it. I want to come to God. I want to tell my son, but I have this sense that he's tired of hearing it from me because it's the same thing over and over again. And friends, I want you to know this. God is not reluctant to forgive. 
Another story that Jesus tells, the story of the prodigal son, very familiar in our culture. But remember the moment where the younger son who has insulted his father and run off with his wealth and squandered it all and finally has come to what can best be described as a half-hearted repentance. He's got no other options left. He says, I will arise, I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned. But before he can get the words out of his mouth, he is His father is running to him and smothering him with kisses and planning a party. Is that your view of God? If it's not, you're going to have great trouble with saying, Father, forgive me my debts. Jesus wants you and Jesus wants me to live in the freedom of forgiveness. Ask for it regularly. It's the forgiveness that we need to receive. You know, but the other side of this Jesus also brings into this prayer. And it's not the forgiveness that we need to receive. It is the forgiveness that we need to give. And you notice the words here. They're quite startling. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And some of us lose our minds at this moment. And we're saying, what does this mean? And what is the relationship of the as? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Does it mean forgive us because we have forgiven others? As if our forgiveness of others earns God's forgiveness of us. No. The because actually works in the opposite direction When you take the New Testament as a whole, forgive as the Lord forgave you means forgive because he forgave you. Well, maybe this means forgive us to the degree that we forgive others. And I want want you to notice what happens there. That's like we're saying, God, you know how forgiving I am. I want you to forgive me in the exact same way that I forgive others. Nope. The model forgiveness is God's, not ours. So what is this saying? Well, let me throw you a line and then we're going to unpack it. I think it's saying something like this. Forgive us while we are learning to forgive. And that's not rooted so much in in the grammar as it is the entire teaching of Jesus. And I'm going to put it this way. If we know that the forgiveness we give actually comes from the forgiveness we receive, why does Jesus put this so starkly here? And I want to consider a few things with you this morning. The first is this. Because asking for forgiveness while refusing to forgive is at best inconsistent and at worst hypocritical. It's like thinking that your debt is NBD. No big deal. But their debt is VBD. Very big deal. And Jesus actually tells a story about this a little later in the Gospel of Matthew. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you're unfamiliar with it, the story goes like this. There's a great king. He's going to settle accounts with his servants. He, he, He runs into one guy who owes him a sum, an enormous sum. We'll just say the size of the national debt. It's an absurd amount of money. And this man falls on his face and pleads with him. He says, I promise I'll pay. And the king has mercy on him. He forgives him his debt. But then this guy bumps into one of his fellow servants out there roaming around who owes him about three months wages. 
Not an insignificant sum, but it's like lunch money compared to what this guy owed the king. And that servant pleads with the man. I'm going to try to play. Please give me time. And you know what the man does? He starts choking the guy. And he's like, you're going to pay right now. And he throws him in jail. And so the king comes to him and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not have you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you. I want you to think, think this out for a second. If you were asking God for mercy, is it unreasonable for God to ask you to be merciful? An unwillingness to forgive reveals a, a heart that is hard. And hard hearts are not yet in a place to sincerely ask for forgiveness. Jesus gives us hard words, but these hard words are intended to make soft hearts. Here's another thing. Praying as we forgive our debtors is also committing us to action. Not to earn God's forgiveness, but to live it out. It's like we're saying, Father, I know that in asking your forgiveness, you are asking me to give what I receive. And I'm committed to that. This prayer is forming and shaping the people of God into a people of forgiveness. But here's the last thing. Who are we addressing in this prayer? We're addressing our father. What father would pretend all is well when their child apologizes for stabbing their sibling in the eye with a fork, right? When that, when that sibling took their toy, but still hates that sibling and still refuses to accept their apology. All is not well. And a good father or mother, for that matter, cares about the condition of the heart of their child. Our heavenly father wants his image reproduced in his children. And he's saying, you got to deal with this in you. I want to form and shape you into a person of forgiveness. It is God's ultimate forgiveness that makes it possible to call him father. And our feeble and faltering attempts to extend forgiveness to others actually draws us into a deeper experience of the father's forgiveness. It's one of the things we can ask forgiveness for. Another way to say it is, it draws us closer to the father's heart. But let's be honest, okay? This is still hard. And it's still hard for a whole lot of reasons. One of which is how we misunderstand forgiveness and we, we make it cheap or simplistic. And so I need to say a few things that are really, really important here. And there's so much more to say, but, but please listen. Forgiveness is not excusing. In order to forgive, you actually have to name the evil that is done. A real wrong suffered, a real hurt inflicted. Forgiveness that does not take the offense seriously is fraudulent and cheap. Here's another thing. Forgiveness does not immediately restore trust. Forgiveness and, and the restoration of trust are two distinct but related things. Forgiveness from the heart, and that's the word Jesus uses in the parable, can begin before someone is changing. By refusing to make them pay for what they have done. But trust can only be rebuilt by a change in behavior. 
Say it another way, you can cancel a debt without giving a new line of credit when it's not loving or not wise. And here's the third thing. Forgiveness does not sidestep the need for accountability and consequences. And if you, and if you tuned out, just please tune back in for a second. Battered women need to remove themselves or be rescued from their abusers. Child predators need to go to jail. Racial violence needs to be vigorously opposed. Attacking someone for hurt they caused you is a sign of bitterness, but hesitancy to place yourself in harm's way again is not. Don't be confused by that. And finally, beware of the forgiveness trap. You ever heard of this before, the forgiveness trap? Only God can demand that you forgive. An offender never can. Offender can only ask for forgiveness because forgiveness is an act of grace. When someone uses scripture to try to put pressure on you to forgive them, that is manipulation. And it is a misunderstanding of grace. It's a trap that makes you feel like the offender. Where the offender puts on the good guy cap and says, you're supposed to forgive me. That's not how this works. That's not what this is. The forgiveness Jesus is calling us to is forgiveness from the heart. Where we are working against the bitterness and the resentment and the hatred that goes off the rails and brings great harm into the world. This is not the same as reconciliation, which involves repentance and ownership and responsibility from the offender. And that can take time if it is possible at all. But you know what Jesus is getting at here underneath the surface? He's concerned that we become a people who know how to put medicine into the world instead of poison. An unforgiving heart is a distributor of poison in the world. It's a very dangerous thing. When someone wrongs you, you sense that there's an eternal debt, that an internal debt that they, they owe you for the wrong. They need to pay, and often the currency is pain. So sometimes we try to inflict it on people. You know, those of us, you know, we're yellers and screamers, right? We want to make them pay. We want to make them hurt. We want to make them suffer. Others of us, we're like more sneaky. We're slanderers, right? We go and just destroy people's reputations. Uh, then there are th- those of us who are withdrawers, right? We just freeze it out by just totally disconnecting. Maybe the wrong was real, but it was not that big of a deal. And we have just like iced them completely, But one of our favorite ways is we try to squeeze payment out of them slowly over time by continually mistreating them in small little ways. Many marriages get ruined like that. We try to inflict it. But you know what? Sometimes we just try to root for it. It's like, I can't wait to see that person get what's coming to them. There is a debt and it has to be paid. When you forgive someone, you're absorbing the debt yourself. You are canceling it at your cost. And Jesus says, this is the medicine that the world needs. Are you putting medicine or poison into the world? You know, most of the things that we get all twisted up about inside, when you start to scale them, aren't as big 
as we maybe thought they were in the beginning. Because when we begin to see the enormity of our offenses against God, the hurts that others have inflicted on us sometimes feel extremely petty by comparison. And there are many of you in this room who would stand up and tell stories about this. You say, when I realized all that I've been forgiven by God, I recognize that I cannot hold this against them. On the other hand, an exaggerated view of others' offenses usually indicate a minimization of our own. Which is why Jesus says, we got to confess. We got to take a look. We got to make sure that we're recognizing the debt that we, are, we have been forgiven. When we forgive, as Leslie Leyland Field says, we actually begin to become the people that Jesus died to make us. Fully, beautifully, whole, and alive. So confessing our sins is simultaneously a commitment to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. How do these two work together? Maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll put it this way. How does God forgive us our sins? And how do we forgive others? You know what? The answer to both those questions is the same. It is through the work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 has this remarkable imagery about the death of Jesus and what it accomplished. It's a little dense, but it basically says this, that when Jesus was going to the cross, he grabbed hold of our note, our debt note, and took it with him. The damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which hung over our heads was nailed with him to the cross and new papers were signed. And those papers over our lives read, no condemnation in Christ. We're to learn to live in that, to live by that. And when we learn to live in that and live by that, we begin to learn to live that out. You know, Jesus, as always, is the answer to the Lord's prayer. The Apostle Paul writes that Jesus is God's yes and amen to all his promises. Well, Jesus is also God's yes to all our prayers, especially forgive us as we are endeavoring to forgive others. At the center of the Christian faith is Jesus who died for the sins of his enemies in order to secure divine forgiveness for them. And it was rooted in love. You know, I'll close with this. Um, there, when forgiveness does protrude from the background into the foreground, on occasion in, in our culture, we often find that it goes one of two directions. The first direction is the pragmatic direction. They're like, you need to forgive because forgiveness is good for you. This is about peaceful emotions. You know, Anne Lamott says, refusing to forgive is like swallowing poison and expecting someone else to die. And that's true. That's very true. But something's missing here. There's something more here. On the other hand is the transactional notion. Like, I will forgive once you've suffered enough. I will forgive once the great work of repair has been completed. I will forgive if and when. And there's something that's intuitively right about recognizing that restoration comes through a process. But something is missing here. Something is missing here. Biblical forgiveness is on entirely different grounds. Biblical forgiveness is rooted in love. The love of God the Father 
through the Son, by the Spirit, into our lives. When we confess our lovelessness, do you know what we receive? We receive God's love. And do you know what God's love does? It actually leads us to love one another. Not to twist out of them enough to earn our forgiveness. And not just, I'm doing this because this makes me feel better. Which it does. But because I love you. And I want to set a foundation for the possibility of restoration and repair. Confessing our sins, as Jesus calls us to, is how we learn to live in the freedom of forgiveness. But it is also how we begin to become agents of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Let us pray. Father, you know our hearts um, right now, where they are, what they're doing with all this. And God, we just ask that you would be at work in us to uncover the places of bitterness and hatred and resentment that we need to confess to you and all the other varieties that we might receive again the joy of forgiveness or maybe for the first time. And that it would begin to work in us in such a way that we actually be, we, we want to extend forgiveness. And we want to do the hard work of repair when that's possible. But Lord, would you, whatever it takes, begin to pull out of us that entrenched resistance to this food that we need, this food that nourishes. Would you heal us of this illness? Would you make us new? Would you cancel all our debts? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.